Nearly 1.5 million high school students in the United States are physically abused by dating partners every year. In 1997, at the age of 17 years old, I became part of that statistic. Dating abuse is not something that's regularly taught in schools, yet over 57% of teens know a peer who has been physically, sexually, or verbally abused in a relationship. In honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I bring to you a four-part series where I will share my testimony as a survivor of domestic violence, help break the stigma of silence that so many victims and survivors feel bound to, and share helpful resources for those in need. I must warn you that what I share may be intense and graphic at times, so please listen with caution. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me and bringing awareness and fighting the demon of domestic violence. Stay tuned for part one on teen dating violence. Welcome to the Unspoken Cycle podcast, where women of all ages and stages in life can find guidance and solace from life's everyday stresses. In each episode, we'll tackle a range of topics, including relationships, health, fertility, self-love, careers, mental illness, and more. Stay Stay tuned tuned. for valuable insights, personal anecdotes, and the comfort of knowing you're not not alone. alone. Here's your host, Leah Vaughn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Unspoken Cycle podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Thank you for your patience. While I took a much needed break and hiatus, I definitely um, am glad that I gave myself some time off. I've been doing so much over the last few weeks. My wife and I took a lovely vacation and we were able to enjoy some sunshine, some natural vitamin D out on the West Coast. And that was so much fun. And then I was able to spend some time with my daughter who's going to college on the West Coast as well and just get her uh, ready for a new year and her upcoming semester. And yeah, I've just been kind of relaxing and enjoying life. It's been a great few weeks. How are y'all doing? I feel like it has been forever. You know, when I started putting my content together to record this episode, I was like, wow, this feels a little foreign to me. You know, when you get out of the habit of doing something on a regular basis and then you go back to it, it feels a little bit weird. So yeah, that's kind of kind of how I am feeling right now. But I'm ready to dig in and I'm ready to just engage with y'all again and um, get back on track, back into the, the routine of things. It always feels good when you're kind of back on top. So so anyways, thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. I really appreciate it. I will say that I am excited for today's episode because it starts a segment of a four-part series that I'm sharing with y'all in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So today is October 2nd. Well, I'm not recording this on October 2nd. However, it is dropping on October 2nd. So we'll say today is October 2nd and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook on my business pages, you know that I am very vocal about my testimony as a domestic violence survivor. Um, I have been in several different situations uh, that have involved domestic violence 
um, in relationships in the past, and they have molded my life in various ways. And there was a point in time when I experienced it for the first time. And that's where I want to start. So I do want to give a trigger warning. Unfortunately, domestic violence is not an exciting, joyful topic to talk about because I will be sharing many bits and pieces of my personal experience with it. It is not pleasant. There's a lot of ugly truths and realities to domestic violence for many reasons. Some of it will be graphic. Some of it will be emotionally triggering or overwhelming or just hard to hear. You know, there are some times that I have conversations with you know, my wife or my best friend about some of the things that I've been through that have even happened to me decades ago. And it's still hard to process sometimes because it's a very deep rooted wound that happens when you're abused. And when you survive, those memories don't just go away because you've survived that relationship. And unfortunately, that is another ugly reality of domestic violence. It takes a lot of healing And it takes a lot of work on yourself to get to a place where you're okay. So big trigger warning that if you're somebody who has survived or is currently a victim of domestic violence, please proceed with caution when listening to these next few episodes. They definitely will contain conversation that can be really tough. And if you're not ready for that, I certainly don't expect you to listen Um, And if you feel like you're ready and you're listening and decide that it's becoming too hard or too painful for any reason, please shut it down and maybe come back to it at a different time. Um, And that is kind of uh, what I want to share with you before I even begin. So welcome to part one of my unspoken story, Teen Dating Violence. The reason why it's so important to me to talk about teen dating violence is because I was a victim of teen dating violence at a very young age. Unfortunately, it was not something that I really even knew existed or could exist. I had obviously dated people in my high school years, even junior high, had crushes and things like that. Never in a million years at that age, or really did I even think about at a future age, was I worried about somebody I dated hitting me, cursing me out, calling me names, abusing me. I don't even think if you asked me what abuse was in my teens, I could have truly defined it. I think that I I would have said hitting or you know violent things but I certainly wouldn't have put an emotional or mental aspect on it. So I was very naive, very young. You know, when you're a teenager, you're still growing, you're still learning. Obviously there's you're you're immature, there's so many things about life that you don't know. And when you're a teenager who's in a violent dating relationship, it becomes like a prison of your naivety. It holds you captive because you really don't know any better. And maybe you do. I mean, maybe if you're somebody who 
whose parents talked about these things with you or who grew up in an abusive home, then you are aware of what it looks like. Um, that was not my case, though. I grew up in a home with two uh, very religious Christian parents. We talked a lot about God's Word and the Bible. I spent a lot of time in church um, as a child, as as an adolescent, and there were a lot of things that weren't topics of conversation at the dinner table. One of them being sex. Another being like, obviously, sex wasn't a, a topic, so we didn't talk about STDs and and safe sex or anything like that. We didn't talk about healthy relationships and what they look like versus unhealthy relationships. You know, my parents were the type of couple that fought behind closed doors or argued behind closed doors. So I really didn't even get to witness an argument or what that should look like or what it meant to uh, disagree with your partner. Um, I had no idea, you know, so, and the relationships I had prior to this one were just very short, you know, very innocent. They didn't really entail a lot. Um, you know, just a typical teen dating relationship. So that's what I always expected there to be until I met this particular individual. Um, and I will kind of dig into my story in just a few minutes here. But that is why this is so important to me because there are so many teens who, number one, don't understand or even think about it or are in these horrible relationships at such a young age and just kind of take it on maybe as their new normal or think that this is how it goes or don't have support at home or or a healthy foundation to fall back on to even know any better or they're afraid to talk about it and so they're just trapped in this horrific cycle of violence and it's it's a really tragic thing to experience when you're still growing and and maturing and your mind is still developing and evolving. And um, yeah, it set me back in a lot of ways. But first, what I want to do is just talk about some statistics around teen dating violence. I think that these are so important to know because teen dating violence is so much more prominent than you can ever imagine it to be. So according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, nearly 21% of female high school students and nearly 13% of male high school students have reported being physically or sexually assaulted by a dating partner. Almost 1.5 million high school students in the United States are physically abused every year by their dating partner. A 2013 study of 10th graders found that 35% had either been physically or verbally abused. 10% of teenage students in dating relationships were coerced into sexual intercourse during the previous year. 25% of teens in relationships were victims of cyber dating abuse, according to a study. Females, by the way, were twice as likely to be victimized than males. 57%. Wrap your head around that. 57% of teens know someone who's been physically, sexually, or verbally abused in a dating relationship. 57% of teens have peers who are in these relationships or have been in these relationships. And only 33% of teenage dating abuse victims have ever told anyone about it. 
half of the youth reporting dating violence and rape also reported attempted suicide. So unfortunately, that's the high school statistic. College is a little bit worse, sadly. 43% of dating college women reported experiencing violent or abusive behaviors from their partner. 43%. That's sad. Over 13% of college women report they've been stalked. And of those cases, 42% were stalked by a boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. How are you even stalked by your current boyfriend? Or ex-boyfriend, obviously. But what is the dynamic in that relationship when, when your man has to follow you around? That's scary. And then one in five college women are sexually assaulted during their college years. Those are the statistics. My friends, that is the reality of domestic violence in a teenage world, in a young adult world. It's very real. Many, many, many of us know someone who's experienced it or did experience it themselves. And if you know someone who's experienced it or you have experienced it yourself, you understand the trauma that it brings. You understand the devastation. You understand how it impacts the rest of your life, the need to heal, future relationships. I mean, it's endless in the ways that it impacts our lives. You're listening listening to The Unspoken Cycle with Leah Vaughn. Embrace your female within. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my story. My story is this particular part of my story is tough because this relationship that I was in at such a young age was incredibly difficult to endure. I felt very alone. Um, For much of it, I felt like I was the problem, like things were my fault. I didn't understand why what was happening was happening to me. I did not feel like I could turn to anybody for help. I was very scared for much of the time. The person I was in a relationship with was extremely violent, had obvious anger issues and a lot of other issues probably, but this person was also young like me. And I became the scapegoat. I became the punching bag. I became the one that got blamed for everything. And that just kind of became my norm. So I hope I can get through this episode without crying, (laughs) which I kind of feel like I want to do now, but I'm going to be strong. Just because when I think back to 17-year-old Leah, I really wish I could go back and rescue her. Um, She didn't deserve by any means any of the things that she went through. And I'll just say I'm glad she's alive. Um, So anywho, this is my story. When I was 17 years old, 
Well, actually, like a month away from being 17 years old. So technically, we met when I was 16. This individual was a year younger than me. He was 15. Um, But I quickly turned 17 or I shortly turned 17 after that. He also turned 16 right after me. So I'll say I was 17 and he was 16 when we really began dating. This individual was charming, funny. Uh, was somebody who caught my attention very quickly, um, was a handsome young guy, and he was talented, and I was impressed by that. You know, it was kind of like a recipe for all of the right things to be attracted to someone as a teenager. And so it didn't take long for the two of us to click. We hung out all the time. We had a mutual group of friends. Um that, you know, was always together. And so spending that much time together with somebody who you're getting to know that you really like and all of these other things, obviously, as a teenager, what happens? You get together, right? We were both single. It was a good opportunity. So we dated. And I will say the first year of that relationship was fun. You know, we were teens, we were hanging out, we were partying together, we were doing all the things that teens do. And that was, you know, fun. But the fun ended uh, about a year into our relationship. And the thing about domestic violence is, like, I can tell you that there are a lot of things I've probably blocked out of my memory. But there are so many things that I will never forget that are just like ingrained in my memory. They're like branded in there. And one of those situations is the very first time that this person hit me. I remember it so well, so vividly. And I just remember we were sitting in this person's bedroom talking about some things and somehow the conversation of an ex-boyfriend came up. and. I don't know what I said, but I obviously said the wrong thing. You know what? I'm not even going to blame that on myself. See, there you go. That's that's trauma. <laughs> uh, I made a comment. I can't even remember what it was, but the comment triggered that individual to become angry. I will defend myself and say that I'm pretty sure that the comment was in- innocent. It wasn't anything, you know... Uh, meant to be antagonistic or anything like that. And he slapped me really hard. And I just remember I kind of gasped and like, (gasps) you know, held my breath for a few seconds, just in utter disbelief at what happened. And I thought, what the hell? And I said, why did you just do that? And he said, because you deserved it. I said, I didn't deserve that. Like, what are you even talking about? And I got close in his face and I said, don't ever fucking touch me again. And he punched me. And in that moment, I was so confused. I was a little dazed And he told me to shut the fuck up. And he said, I'll hit you if I want to. And I don't know 
what my next reaction was really. That's really the only part of that story that I remember so vividly. I just know that I didn't walk away and the relationship continued. And it was almost like because he knew he got away with it the one time, that was his open door to indulge in that behavior anytime he wanted to. So for the next several years of my life, I was with this individual and it became a cycle of, I would do things that would make him upset. I don't even, you know, recall a lot of the specific things that would make him upset. And he would hit me. And then he would apologize for it. And then he would cry about it. A lot of times he would cry about it. Typical abuser behavior. I'm so sorry. I don't want to do this to you. You push me, you know, to this, you know, behavior or you make me do it. You know, all the bullshit blame. And after just a couple of times, I really started to believe that it was my fault that I was making him do that. Because again, I didn't have a clear idea of how abuse worked. I didn't even really have a a good understanding of healthy conflict resolution. I mean, I assumed, I mean, I knew what he was doing was wrong, but I just assumed that since it became so normal that I guess it was somewhat normal or I don't know, maybe I just started to wear that as my reality and accept it. Um, I was young. He told me he loved me all the time Um, when he wasn't angry and, and violent. He was funny and charismatic. People loved him. He was charming you know, so a lot of the times I did think, okay, I pissed him off or, okay, I deserve that. And I would just kind of write it off as, well, hopefully there's not a next time. Hopefully this is the last time. That was something he would often say to me was, I won't do this again. I promise I'll change. I won't do that again. Next time I'll walk away. Like those were words he did say often, as often as he cried about it. And I believed him. I wanted to believe him because there was that component of that person that young guy I really, really liked and at one point fell in love with. And I wanted him to be that person. I wanted him to be who he was in the beginning, right? So I hung on to that idea. I romanticized who he was. And I just kind of, I guess, temporarily accepted that this was part of him, but that it wasn't a permanent part of him. It was just like a in the moment part of him. And it wasn't going to be who, how he wasn't going to be like that forever. And, you know, it was a very young way of thinking. And, um, I wanted that relationship to be this great, like loving, long lasting relationship with this guy. And so, you know, I didn't know how to handle it. As the violence continued, 
it began to escalate. It wouldn't just consist of hitting me or slapping me or punching me. It would consist of kicking me, picking me up and throwing me into walls. He was very careful to not leave bumps and bruises where they were visible to other people. We were always hanging out with his family members. We were always around his siblings and his friends. And obviously, if I looked beat up all the time, you know, that was going to be a different story. So he was very careful to hit me on the top of my head or the back of my head, or he would kick me in my lower back or on my thighs. Um, Places where bumps and bruises were always hidden. On one hand, I didn't have to worry about hiding it from anyone as far as see them seeing it and asking questions. I remember one particular incident, and just a warning, this is graphic. We got into an argument. We were getting ready to go out with some of his friends. And as I was walking out of the bedroom, he kicked me really hard in my lower back, kind of right above my butt, you know, really, really low down by my butt crack. And he kicked me so hard. I fell, fell to my knees and I couldn't get back up. I literally could not walk. And he grabbed me by the arm, yanked me up and dragged me out of the house. So I forced, I had to force myself to like take steps out of the house so that I wasn't dragging my feet and my knees on the sidewalk. And of course he's saying, get the fuck up, get the fuck up. You're not hurt. You know, stop acting like that. And I'm literally crying. Like, I don't know what you just did to me, but you literally laid me out. My back is, is, I don't know, spasmed or something, but I can't move my legs. I can't bend at the hip. I was scared. I was crying. So I'm able to muster up whatever strength I had in that moment and walk down the sidewalk to the car and I'm crying and his friends are waiting by the car. And of course I walk out and they say, are you okay? What's going on? Is everything okay? He just throws me the keys, tells me to get the fuck in the car and tells them this bitch doesn't know how to shut her fucking mouth. Those were his words. This bitch doesn't know how to shut her fucking mouth. So I taught her. Okay. Okay. Do you know his friends just, oh, that was their response. Oh, and they got in the car. I was literally fighting to be mobile in that moment, crying, and their response was, oh. (laughs) So I got in the car and I drove and I feel like in that moment, is when I taught myself how to block things out and how to kind of leave my body, so to speak. Like I was there, but I wasn't there. And I realized in that moment too, that people don't really care about each other. The other individuals that got in the car with us weren't concerned at his behavior. They were his friends. They were real accepting of it. 
And the car ride was really, it was silent on my part. You know, and I just think of all the times after that, you know, so many times he would do things that would open the door for him to continue that behavior. And that was an example of how it became okay for him to do things in front of his friends. And not once did they ever stick up for me. Not once did they ever say, what the fuck, dude? Like, that's crazy. You shouldn't be doing that. You should not be, or not once did they ever like ask me if I was okay or offer me help or support. You know, and I think if I were to see any one of them today, there's some of them that I would remember their faces. And there's some of them that I probably wouldn't recognize on the street today because it was so long ago. But if I ran across any of the individuals that were around at that time in my life and and witnessed some of it, <laughs> oh God, I just don't even know what I would say. But I know it would be a whole lot of fuck yous. <laughs> I don't know, you know, but how terrible and realistically how sad because they were probably individuals that were doing the same things to their girlfriends or grew up to be the same way to their wives or whatever. I don't know. But how can you just sit back and watch that kind of behavior and just be okay with it? Like it's normal. Like that's, that's what it is. That's how it's supposed to be. So needless to say, for me, life became that. It became the cycle of violence. It became the honeymoon stage, the buildup, and the explosion, literally. There were a lot of times when the honeymoon stage was long, several months long, and I thought it would never happen again. I thought it was over. And then things would start to escalate. And I feel like I could always tell by his mood or his behavior up to a certain point that something was getting ready to happen. And I feel like in those moments when I sensed that something was getting ready to happen, I would provoke it because I just wanted to get it over with. And in a weird way, that was my way of controlling it. That was my way of not being blindsided by an explosion, but instigating the explosion so that I was ready for it. You know, and how fucked up is that? That here I am, a teenager, literally having to predict when I'm going to get my ass kicked by my boyfriend. And if I feel like it's coming on, I feel like in order to protect myself in the best way that I can, I instigate the violence. <laughs> it's just a fucked up cycle to have to go through and to have to, to live through. But it didn't end there. Unfortunately, I was with this individual for many years. And the longer these things went on, the worse it got, the 
the more it escalated. Unfortunately, I began to suffer broken bones, uh, lacerations that left scars. I have several scars on my hands from things like him lighting his lighter and then singeing my skin with the hot end of the metal. I remember there was one time when I was driving. And again, when I when I share these bits and pieces of my story, please know they're graphic. Um, that's part of the healing part of a testimony is being real and authentic and transparent. And so there was this time that we were driving. I was driving behind the wheel. We got into an argument. I don't know what was said. I just remember there was an argument. He elbowed me in the stomach while I was driving and knocked the wind out of me. So I felt like I was going to pass out. I couldn't breathe. I was grasp like gasping for breath. So he grabbed the wheel and I was like, I started panicking because I really felt like I couldn't breathe. And I finally was able to just take a deep breath, you know, one of those like gasps for breath, caught my breath. So I grabbed the wheel again. Then he took his lighter and burnt my hand because he was mad that he had to take the wheel for me. <laughs> you know, and there were so many times where it was just, I thought to myself as I continued to drive down the road, and look at the cars around me like they have no idea what's happening in this car right now. It was a really isolating time in my life. I felt extremely alone. Not only did I feel alone, but I felt so unsafe. In addition to the violence from this person, he began to verbalize his anger in a lot of ways that was very threatening to me. He began telling me he was going to murder me. If I didn't do certain things a certain way, he would also threaten my family members. And he would say, if I didn't cooperate or quote unquote act right, you know, he threatened my parents. He threatened to rob them. He threatened to murder them. He threatened to find my friends and where they lived and kill them. He just began to escalate really psychotic behavior. And psychotic is not a word I would have used then, but I certainly am using it now. This guy's psycho. And honestly, there's a possibility that individuals who know him or are related to him may listen to this episode. And I am not afraid to say he's fucking crazy. The way that he acted towards me was crazy. There's no other way for me to explain it. Unfortunately, I had to start hiding my injuries. It wasn't just bruises or bumps on parts of my head or my body. It was, like I said, broken bones. I have a pinky finger that he literally snapped and never healed. So my pinky finger is slightly deformed and has a lump at the joint that has never healed correctly. 
I had broken ribs. My mom had to take me to the ER one time because I had two broken ribs on my right side. He got really angry at me and he punched me in the back and broke two of my ribs. And I lied to her and told her that we were wrestling around and I rolled over onto my elbow and I couldn't, I was having a hard time breathing. So I felt like there was something wrong. So I was lying about what was going on. I had to wear a brace around my ribs for several weeks until they healed correctly. And while I was healing, I could reach my hand back and run my finger up and down that part of my rib cage and just feel these massive lumps where my bones were not healed. It was crazy. Eventually, I started to feel long-term side effects from the abuse. So in 2018, uh, it was 18 and a half. So it was probably closer to 2019. I started to have really bad migraine headaches and they wouldn't go away. And so I went to my doctor who had been my doctor since childhood and I was still under his care. I wasn't living at home with my parents or anything and I was an adult. So I didn't have to worry about bringing my mom into the conversation or bringing her with me to appointments or anything, anything like that. So I went to see the doctor and I told him, you know, my, I keep having these really bad headaches. It's affecting me at work. You know, I don't know what's wrong. And he says, well, have you had your eyes checked? Yes, I've had my eyes checked. My eyes, are, my eyesight is okay. You know, well, you know, have you had your teeth checked? Do you have any cavities? Sometimes that can cause headaches and things, you know, pain. Yes, I've had my teeth checked. I don't have any cavities or anything like that. Okay. So let's talk about what else could be causing these headaches for you. And he asked me a lot of questions. Did I drink caffeine? Did I eat certain things? And at that time, no, I wasn't really a coffee drinker. I did, you know, I, I ate fast food and stuff, but I wasn't eating a lot of sugar or anything else. And so he said, you know, are you stressed? Do you have like, what's going on in your life? And, you know, I felt really comfortable with him. He was the kindest man who had taken care of me for so long. And I said, well, I'm in a situation in my relationship and my boyfriend isn't that nice to me. And I told him, I said, please don't tell anybody, but sometimes he hits me and sometimes he hits me really hard in the head. And he said, is he hitting you with an open hand or a closed fist? And I said, a closed fist. And he said, have you ever blacked out or not been able to remember what happened after he hits you? in the head. And I said, I've never blacked out, but I have felt dizzy or kind of foggy headed. Um, but I've never passed out from it. And he said, okay. He said, well, it sounds like you may have something going on in your brain if he's constantly hitting you in the head. And he would ask, he asked me to show him what areas of my head that he was hitting me. And a lot of the time it was on top, on the very top of my skull or directly in the back or on the side, which obviously sounds like all of the parts or all of the areas. And he said, maybe there's a potential that you have an injury. And as soon as he said that, all I could think of was, oh my God, if I have an injury, That means I'm going to have to go to somebody else who's going to have to look at my brain and try to help me fix it. And that means there's a potential that this person who's doing this to me can find out that I went to the doctor for it. 
And that scared me really, really badly because that meant if he found out that I went to a doctor and told and told him that he's hitting me, he's probably going to kill me like he said he would. And I don't want to die. So I left. I left the doctor's office that day. I told him I would follow up with him and I never called him again. And I wish that in that moment, there would have been more protocols for physicians like there are now about mandated reporting or just offering me resources or guidance on how to get to safety or advocate for myself, even if it was in a way that was secretive or that I had to do kind of behind the scenes of my situation. But it was 1998. There wasn't really a lot going on at that time for that kind of stuff. And he didn't offer me any resources. He just wanted me to get checked out. So sometimes when I talk about parts of my story, I get angry because I feel like there's so many other Leahs in this world who didn't have the help that they really needed. And I really wish I would have had other things where I could have turned to or that could have been helpful. I didn't even know about domestic violence shelters or support centers or anything. I didn't even truly really understand the scope of domestic violence. I certainly didn't call it that at that time in my life. And it just hurts me because I think maybe my outcome would have been different. Maybe I wouldn't have had to endure so much pain and hurt and trauma. Um, but that's not how it happened, you know, and it's just unfortunate sometimes when I think back to like, why wasn't there more available to me? You know, even when my mom took me to the ER and the ER doctor was asking me what happened, she told them, my mom spoke for me because I was kind of numb and I mean, she didn't know, but I knew what had really happened and I just was, it was just crazy to me that I was in the ER getting patched up for it and so many things going through my head. And I'm thinking, young girl, quiet, kind of reserved, mom's talking for her. And the story is that her and her boyfriend were wrestling, wrestling around. She fell on her elbow and cracked two of her ribs. As a survivor, I'm thinking, I call bullshit on that. <laughs> But the doctor didn't ask any other questions. You know, so I don't know. Just sometimes I think back and some parts of the reality just make me sad. But but anyway, so I was hiding for the most part what was happening to me. My friends and family didn't know. However, there was definitely a shift in my behavior, in my attitude. I became much angrier and kind of withdrawn from my friends and my parents and my family. And I'm pretty sure they knew that something wasn't right. I remember a very distinct interaction between my sister 
and my brother-in-law. And it was Thanksgiving time. And my boyfriend was not allowed at my parents' house. After a while, at this point, we had been together for a couple of years. And after a while, I think they just started to sense that he wasn't a good guy. You know, I always stuck up for him and I never disclosed to anybody in my family or even to my friends that he was abusive or anything like that. So that that was not something they knew was going on. But when you know your family, you know. So I'm pretty sure they knew something was wrong. They made it very clear that he was not welcome to Thanksgiving at my parents' house this year. But they expected me to be there. And I wanted to be around my family. They still provided comfort to me. And it was home. And however, I lived with him. We had our own apartment. And... He did not want me to go if he couldn't go. So I called my family at the last minute on Thanksgiving Day and said, I can't come. I can't make it. And my mom was upset. And I made up a lie about how I didn't feel good or something like that. Well, (laughs) a little while later, my sister and my brother-in-law show up at my apartment. And we're basically like, Leah's coming with us. I dare you to fucking stop her. And at that point, I really understood that they did know something wasn't right. They came to my quote unquote rescue without even really knowing the dynamic of the situation that was going on behind closed doors. And I was really happy that they came. But I knew there was going to be consequences if I left. And I still wanted to leave and go spend time with my family. And if anything, like block out the horror in my life for that period of time. So I did. I left with them. I went. I remember getting to my parents' house and actually being really upset because of how scared I was of how it was going to be when I returned. And I was not going to tell my family that I was scared, but I was upset. So I spent time in my mom and dad's bedroom and I just kept chalking it up to I didn't feel very good. I know my mom knew something was wrong, but I wouldn't talk. So there was pointless trying to like get me to say anything. So I eventually came out, spent time with my family, hung out with everybody, had a good meal, visited with all my relatives that were over and everything. And then it was time to go home. My anxiety riding home that night was through the roof. I was highly anticipating an extremely scary situation when I got there. And I just remember getting out of their car. My sister walked me to the door, gave me a huge hug. And I walked inside and everything was quiet and dark. There were no signs of him in the apartment anywhere. And I thought, okay, well, maybe he just got really pissed off and left. Like I'd rather him go leave and I don't know, go drink with his friends or I don't even care what rather than sit here and stew on how he wants to fucking kill me when I get back, you know? So, so the apartment was quiet. So I'm, and it was a small apartment. So I'm walking around in the living room, the kitchen, don't see him check the backyard. No one's out there. Go in the bedroom. Don't see anybody go in the bathroom. Don't see anybody. So I use the bathroom and I walk back into the bedroom. This guy walks out of the closet. He was hiding in the closet. He grabbed me by my hair 
pushed me into the bathroom, turned the water on, the shower, cold, told me to take my clothes off and get in the shower. So I did that. He pulled the shower curtain back and watched me. And he was like, don't turn it on hot water. You're taking a cold shower. So I took a cold shower, got out of the shower, butt naked, wouldn't let me dry off, beat me up pretty badly, shoved me on the ground and made me stay there. And we didn't have carpet. We lived in kind of a rundown little apartment and there was no carpet. It was hard. It wasn't even hardwood. It was like hard hard linoleum floors. I laid on the floor that night, totally wet, freezing cold. And that's what he said I deserved for allowing him to be alone for Thanksgiving and being selfish enough to go spend it with my family instead. So fast forward to we left the state and moved up north. This was the Pacific Northwest at this time. And we still lived together. And everything in my life at that time got darker and harder because now I was no longer close to my family. I can't tell you why I went. I mean, I know some of the reasons why I wanted to go. My mom was becoming really kind of overprotective. And I think she was sensing more and more that something was really wrong. And because I wasn't opening up to her, she was kind of pushing and prodding and it was getting on my nerves. And there were some situations where I would be at her house visiting or there were a couple of periods of time where I stayed with her and my dad for short periods of time. And if my boyfriend would call the house, she would tell him not to call or lie and say I wasn't there because she didn't want me talking to him and things like that. And to me, I knew she meant well, but the reality was she was interfering in a very violent relationship and all of those things meant consequences that were going to hurt me. And I was tired of paying for that, you know, and I know she was just being a good mom, but I didn't want to pay the consequences anymore for her overprotection or her protection of her daughter, you know, and that's one of the hardest things when it comes to knowing that someone you love is being abused, you want to jump in, you want to save them, you want to get involved. But a lot of the times it makes things so much worse. It's such a tricky thing to navigate. Anyway, so I know why I left. I left because I wanted to get away and I just wanted to be able to figure it out on my own. And I didn't want to be his punching bag anymore because he was tired of my mom trying to save me or not even save me because she didn't know what she was saving me from, but just help me. And so I moved out of state and things got really, again, just dark and lonely, lonelier and scarier. He knew I was there alone and I only had him and his family to rely on. And let me tell you, the holidays there... I hated them, you know. They were terrible. I remember the first Thanksgiving there. He went to his mom's house. The irony of the story I just told you about me going to my family's house without him. He went to his mom's house without me. And I mean, it was my decision. I didn't want to go. I was just in a really bad place mentally and in a really dark place emotionally. And I did not want to spend time with his family because I wanted to be with mine. So I stayed alone in the apartment and I just cried. 
And in that moment, I cried and cried. I didn't want to live anymore. You know, I just didn't really know what the purpose of my life was anymore. I felt like I was never going to be able to get away from him. I felt like if I did get away from him, he would try to kill me or hurt my family or my friends, like he said. And because of the way that he was so sadistically violent to me, I absolutely believed every threat that he ever said. To me, they weren't threats. They were just promises that had he hadn't fulfilled yet. You know, so I felt like staying with him was protecting my people. And I was willing to just kind of sacrifice myself for that. But I got tired. I got really tired. I just didn't want it anymore. You know, I wanted to give up. So I remember he came home after spending Thanksgiving with his mom and his family. And he was sleeping on the couch. And I just remember sitting in a chair staring at him and thinking, I wish I had the balls to kill him. I felt like of all the times he told me he wanted me to die or he wanted to kill me or my family or my friends, I just felt like he didn't deserve to live. How can you possibly treat someone so horribly who literally does nothing to deserve it? I was such an innocent young girl in that relationship. And I was so naive and timid and scared. And I just think, you know, there have been so many times I've tried to replay what I can remember of my behavior. Like, did I deserve that? Was I instigating it? Was I causing such anger? And no, I wasn't. There was literally nothing I was doing that deserved any of what I was receiving. And I think that's what made it so scary because there was nothing I could do to control the situation. You know, so many times before I had thought about, could I kill him? I had thought about leaving. What if I leave tonight? What if I save part of my paycheck and, and I just run? What if I just, you know, go straight to the bank on payday and, and go get, a, get on the train and go home? And I always, always, always would replay his words in my mind and just knew if I did that, I would die or someone I loved would die because he would hunt me down and take my life or he would punish me by hunting my family or friends down and torturing them or taking their lives or doing something horrific to them to get me back. So as a side note, quickly, I just want to give y'all a statistic from the Bureau of Justice. On average, a woman will leave an abusive relationship seven times before she leaves for good. Approximately 75% of women who are killed by their batterers are murdered when they attempt to leave or after they have left. Let that sink in. Women will try to leave on average seven times before they're successful. And of those women who are killed, 75% of them are murdered when they attempt to leave or after they leave. Because guess what? The abuser is losing control. 
they're losing the one thing that's their prized possession that they can control. Once that thing is gone, I mean, they're not even, you know, the victims are not even people, they're objects. And once they're gone, the abuser no longer has control, no longer has a punching bag, no longer has a scapegoat, no longer has an outlet for their anger and for their sadistic behavior. And they get pissed and they didn't give a fuck before and they surely don't give a fuck now. So for those who question, why didn't you just leave? You don't even want to know the reality of why I didn't leave. I would never in a million years wish on anyone to truly understand the shoes I was living in and why I didn't leave. And for anyone who questions any victim or survivor on why they didn't just leave or why they didn't make different decisions or why they didn't do this or why didn't do that. Stop fucking worrying about it. How about offer a little empathy and support? So I'm here today, obviously sharing my story. I did leave. It wasn't easy. It was a very scary road. But I did leave. And I want to end with just sharing that part of my story because that is a happy ending for me. Even though it was a treacherous ending and a way to navigate my life, I got to a point where I became just really, really, really fed the fuck up. My body was tired of physically hurting all the time. I was tired of feeling ill I was tired of being scared and always watching over my shoulder and always having to predict the next moment or the next explosion. I was tired of the tears, the crocodile fucking tears. I was so tired of them. I was tired of looking at his face. I was tired of hearing his voice. I was tired of feeling his breath. I was sick of everything about it. There's so much more to my story and so many more details that I don't think I'll ever, ever, ever share. It gets worse in a lot of ways. He was somebody who, and this is probably a subject for a totally different topic of of my podcast, but he was somebody who also sexually abused me. And if you're wondering, yes, that's possible. In an intimate relationship, you can be sexually abused. You know, there were a lot of times that that was also part of his punishment he would hit me with, he started hitting me with objects, not just his fists or his legs or his feet. He would hit me with bottles of liquor, throw things at me, sticks. And yeah, he would force me to do sexual things for him that I didn't want to do. And if I said no, guess what? I'm sure you can assume what would happen. You know, so I was tired. I was beyond tired, but But I didn't want to die because I just felt like, why do I deserve to not live anymore because of this asshole? You know, like that doesn't feel right either. That feels so unfair. And I feel like the more unfair it felt and the more tired I got, the more rebellious I got and the more I wanted to just not care at the outcome. It was fine. If you're going to kill me, fucking kill me then. If you're going to hunt me down and punish me, hunt me down and punish me. Just don't fuck with my family. Don't hurt my friends. But you could do whatever you want to me. 
but I'm sick and tired of sitting here by your side because I don't want to be here with you anymore. You know, and I hit that point of no return and of just the willingness to risk my life to get away. So certain things happened in my life and I reached out to my parents and I asked them to come get me. And I just told them I missed them and I wanted to come home and that there were certain circumstances that were really hard for me being so far away from them. I had a child with this guy and that was a breaking point. I was looking at life not only from a survivor's perspective of I'm tired, I have to get out, but now I am carrying an innocent child who I'm protecting with my body. And my baby was born and my parents came. And let me tell you how that pregnancy almost didn't survive. He was very angry about it, wanted nothing to do with being a father and still didn't want to lose me and was still trying so hard to hang on to me and control me through abuse and everything throughout my entire pregnancy. But my parents showed up with a U-Haul, packed all my shit. And the day that they showed up, he came into the kitchen. I was doing dishes and he said, give me five bucks. And I said, I don't have $5. And I had my baby in a little carrier, like on the front, like a front, you know, a front carrier. And I was just kind of holding her. He punched me in the face and said, how dare you not give me your last $5 knowing your parents are here to pick you up and they're going to give you all the money in the world, you bitch. And when I tell you I couldn't have run faster out of that apartment when they pulled up, I'm pretty sure I probably left shit behind. But I left. I left and I went back home. He didn't follow me back home, but he did call me relentlessly for many, many, many weeks and continued to threaten my life if I didn't return or if I didn't buy him a bus ticket or a train ticket to come be with me and pick me and the baby up and go back to him. He threatened to kill my baby as a punishment to me. He threatened to send his friends to my house where I lived with my parents to burn us all down. And there were so many sleepless nights there. So many. And eventually, it started to fade. Like he would call less. He seemed like he started to care less. And I thought, oh my God, it's working. You know, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm breaking free. I'm breaking free. And I just kept feeling a little more and more at ease. The, the more days that would pass that the phone didn't ring and it wasn't him would make me feel more and more comfortable. And then I got a phone call from a girl who was the sister of a good friend of his up where he lived. And she said, I've been dating him for a couple of months now. And I'm really scared because he's really violent and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Because I know you know what I'm going through. <laughs> so after I got that phone call, it was light bulb. That's why 
he's not been so attentive to me and so threatening to me anymore because he replaced me with another object that's there that he can control. There are parts of me that wish I would have responded differently to this person, but I was still trying to save myself and my child. And I told her, I'm sorry for what you're going through. I didn't know you and him were together. I'm still trying to escape my relationship with him. So this is news, but I'm glad he has you because now he no longer wants me. And my advice to you is to find a way out like I did. And I hung up on her. I blocked her number so she couldn't keep calling. And here I am today to talk about it. You know, there were so many times over the last decades that I've talked about writing a book and and doing a biography of my life and experiences. And sometimes I think I'm ready to just expose it all. And sometimes it still scares me. Obviously, there were other things that transpired in my life after that relationship. But that relationship set the tone for a lot of things. My life immediately following that relationship was a mess. I was still young. Not only was I young, but I was a young mother. I was trying to figure out how to be an adult while trying to figure out how to live a normal life without the daily chaos of the cycle of abuse. I didn't know how to be normal and I didn't know how to have healthy relationships. And there were periods of time in my life when I wanted to date people and things after that, that I realized I was very unhealthy. I was a very unhealthy person. If I had disagreements with people, I expected them to want to fight me. I expected them to want to hit me. I expected them to want to call me names and curse me out. And if they didn't, I felt offended. I felt like they didn't love me if that wasn't their response, because that's all I knew, you know? And so it really took a lot of soul searching and learning and healing. And I can honestly say that I didn't even really accept that I was in a domestic violence relationship until a couple of years after it ended. I knew I was in a relationship where my partner was violent and very hurtful in a lot of ways and and threatening to me. But domestic violence wasn't in my vocabulary. Abuse wasn't in my vocabulary. And I still think a large part of me didn't accept the severity of what I was really living through and what I had really survived. You know, so when we talk about teen dating violence, know that those statistics are real. They're scary. And those are children. They don't know. And sadly, even today, a lot of those relationships result in both parties being abusive to each other because they think that that's a normal way of handling conflict or resolving conflict. There's anger issues. There's unresolved mental health issues. There's so many things happening that aren't addressed. You know, it's really sad. So for as long as I can remember since that relationship, even despite the difficulties that came after that, 
I've always been an advocate of knowledge and awareness because that's what we deserve. That's what our children deserve. That's what we deserved back then. You know, it's only fair to educate ourselves, our loved ones, our communities, because this is bullshit. I'm thankful for my testimony in ways that it's allowed me to do what I do and help so many other women heal from their trauma and move on and thrive. But sometimes I hate my testimony, you know? Sometimes I hate that I can sit here and talk about the things that I've been through because it feels like a dream. Like, that's horrific. But that was me. So for those of you who are listening today, whether you're a victim currently or you're a survivor of teen dating violence or young adult violence in high school, in any sort of elementary, middle school, in college, you're not alone. There are others who understand what it's like to be in the shoes you are in or have been in or maybe know someone who's experienced it. Know that there are resources out there that are meant to help. I know it's a scary thing to make the decision to leave or to make the decision to change your life. But those resources are meant specifically for that. And because of our advanced technology and the ways that we can communicate today, those resources are confidential. You don't have to tell anybody who you are. A lot of the time, you can seek out information without the person who's hurting you even knowing. Or you can give information to somebody who needs it in a very discreet, private way. I encourage you first and foremost to safety plan. Safety planning can save your life, literally, or the life of somebody that you love and care about. I wish somebody would have sat down with me and taught me what it meant to safety plan, to come up with a way to find a way out or to find the right time to find the way out. Because sometimes it feels like there isn't a right time. Sometimes it feels like you literally have to flee. I encourage you to look inside and know that your worth has nothing to do with the way that you're treated. That you cannot control someone else's behavior and you do not cause someone else's behavior. It is not your fault. It never was. It never will be. There is no reason on this earth that you deserve to be treated in any of those ways. You're loved. You're beautiful. You're here. You're meant to be here. Please know that. Even if you are still living in circumstances that are hurtful to you or challenging to you, you're a survivor. And the strength alone that you carry right now and that you will carry in the future is immense. And you probably don't feel it. You probably don't even know it's there. You're probably angry for a lot of things, but you're a survivor. Begin to embrace that part and you can get to the other side. Certainly reach out to me for anything that I can possibly do to be of a support system or a helpful resource to you. You can reach me via email at theunspokencycle at gmail.com. 
You can message me on any of my social media platforms, the Unspoken Cycle on Instagram and the Unspoken Cycle on Facebook. There's a domestic violence hotline that you can call. The phone number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can also go onto the website, ndvh.org. There's the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. There's so many resources and phone numbers and ways to reach out for help. You can visit ncadv.org. There's even a feature that allows you to exit out of the web page if you look it up, and it immediately deletes it from your search history. They're there to protect you and your safety. For those experiencing teen violence, loveisrespect.org is a great resource for information. You can also reach them at 866-331-9474. Additionally, please seek out resources in your city or ask someone to do it for you. There are shelters everywhere for women and teens who are scared for their lives because of who they live with and because of who is abusing them. They are there for you. Thank you so much for listening to my story today. It was not easy sharing this, but I knew I wanted to do it. I am a survivor of teen dating violence, and I'm not afraid to share it anymore. Please like and subscribe, and I look forward to continuing to share my story with you next week on part two of my unspoken story. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to The Unspoken Cycle with Leah Vaughn. Remember to embrace your female within and connect with our community at theunspokencycle.com. Until next time, take care.